Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Uh, Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, through Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile shall stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary at drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went to his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom, and on your bed, and into the houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the Egyptians did the same by their secret arts, and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frog shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. 
Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beasts. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. This biblical text from Exodus chapter 7 and 8 that we're reading this morning is telling the story of the ultimate clash of powers. It's a story about competing kingdoms in conflict. So, if you look around at the world as it is, how messed up it is and how much evil is in the world, and your heart yearns for some epic story about some noble hero to challenge this, you don't have to go watch Avengers Endgame. And you probably should not watch Game of Thrones. I'm just going to be real with you pastorally for a moment. All you got to do is let the truth of the Word of God open the eyes of your heart to see reality as it really is. The reality of my day-to-day life and of your day-to-day life is that we live in the midst of a great clash of powers. We live in the midst of kingdoms and conflict. We're in the middle of a battle. On one hand is God, the creator and redeemer of all things, whose kingdom is seeking to bring his creation to its fulfillment, to fill the world with joy and justice and peace and love and truth. And on the other side is various powers of evil. That's our reality. That's what we're participating in day to day. So this text alerts us to that fact because Satan wants to lull us to sleep. It's amazing that any of us are going through life bored. Boredom is actually a characteristic experience of our times. But boredom is a symptom of being deeply out of tune with reality. Because the reality, friends, is that you and I are participating every day in a battle, a clash of powers, with eternal ramifications that our side we know is victorious because Jesus the King has already died for our sins and risen from the grave and promised to return. And that the actions that we carry out day to day have a deep impact for eternity and for generations in history. That's reality. So I want to ask you to just bow your head with me for a moment. Before I go on preaching, I just want to ask you, would you take a moment of silence just to plead with the Lord to open the eyes of your heart to reality? Before we pray, I just want to help you notice what I did and didn't say a second ago. I did not say, if you want a great epic story about a clash between good and evil, read the Bible story. I could have said that. But what I said is, If you want to see a great epic story of the clash between good and evil, let the Bible open your eyes to look at the reality of your day-to-day life. You don't just have to read about it. We are living it. So let's just take a moment to pray. Lord, as we meditate on your word this morning, would you open our hearts to see the reality of this kingdom conflict? 
Our Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit to do right now what no human being can do, which is to shine the light of the truth of Jesus Christ into our hearts and to open our eyes to the reality of your grace, the reality of your kingdom, the reality of the spiritual battle, and in a way that would cause us to trust and fear and love you and never to fear Satan, but with hope and joy and confidence to engage actively, zealously, and the reality of the battle that we're a part of every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everybody say clash of powers. That's what we're talking about today. That's what Exodus 7 and 8 is about. Here's the two powers. On one side is God, Yahweh, the great I Am, as He has revealed Himself to be to Moses. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God who is going to reveal himself to us in Jesus Christ. This God is at work in Exodus 7 and 8. And his side is the side of goodness, truth, love, justice, and grace. He is the creator, the source of all life. And as the sovereign warrior king, God fights for life, truth, goodness. It's, it's important that as we talk about the compassion of God and the love of God and the gentleness of God and the forgiveness of God, we don't lose sight of the fact that according to Scripture, He's also the warrior king. So everybody say, God is a warrior. God is ultimately fighting this battle, and He is working through His chosen human servants, Moses and Aaron. Now, if you've been paying attention over the last few months as we study Exodus, you know that Moses and Aaron are not perfect people, are they? They struggle with sin and doubt and all kinds of problems. But he chose them by his grace. He forgave their sins and he consecrated them to enter into his kingdom and participate in his redemptive work. And that's the same as you and me. If we trusted in Jesus Christ, by God's grace, we're forgiven. We're adopted into the family of God. And we also are commissioned to join in this battle, this conflict between competing powers. So everybody, I need your help. Please turn to your neighbor. Say, we are God's army. I'm going to show this to you specifically in the scriptures a little bit later, but I already want you to make the connection. On the other side, the side opposing God in this story, we find an array of evil forces bent on deception, oppression. They want to keep God's people slaves. Idolatry. They want to keep people bound by the false religious system in Egypt. And exploitation. The evil side includes... A, a cast of characters, starting with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is power-hungry. Pharaoh is self-obsessed. He's a political ruler who demands to be treated as if he were a god and refuses to acknowledge the sovereignty of the one true God. Remember, when Moses first came to Pharaoh and said, the Lord God of Israel said, let my people go, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Who is he to me? I'm God of Egypt. That's Pharaoh's mentality. And he's wrong. But he demands to be treated as if he were God. He refuses to acknowledge the sovereignty of the one true God. And characteristically, he is hard-hearted. That's how the book of Exodus depicts Pharaoh over and over again. Let me just show you a few times in this text. Look at chapter 7, verse 14. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. That's God speaking about Pharaoh. Skipping down to verse 22, the second half of the verse. Do you see it? So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Skipping down to chapter 8, verse 15. 
At this time, God has responded to the prayer of Moses to relent from the plague of frogs. And after he experiences a little mercy, it says, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. And then the very last phrase of our text today, chapter 8, verse 19, even after his magicians are recognizing that they're in a conflict with a power that is out of their league, still Pharaoh, the text says, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let me just comment right quick that in all of these verses, it says Pharaoh has a hard heart. And in all of these verses, the hard heart is, of Pharaoh is made manifest by the fact that he refuses to listen to the word of God. He will not obey God's word. That's how you know his heart is hard. And let me just say right now, sometimes I know from personal experience and from pastoral experience that we come to church with hard hearts. And I just want to point you to the example of Pharaoh and say, you do not want to be on this guy's team. You don't want to be in this guy's position. Because if you harden your heart to the word of God, God's word is still going to prevail. You and I are going to prove the word of the Lord true, either through our redemption according to his grace, or sadly through our judgment according to our rebellion. So if you're here and you have a hard heart, no need trying to hide it. All of us have been there. But what I would just say is right now, right now where you're sitting, just cry out. God is merciful to those who cry out in humble, repentant faith. Say, Lord, my heart is hard to your word. Lord, I'm thinking about everything other than your word. I'm resisting your word. I'm doubting your word. I'm being skeptical, not because I'm smart, but because I have unbelief, because I have sin. Lord, have mercy on me. Give me a soft heart before your word. Pharaoh has a hard heart. He's a political ruler who has aligned himself with evil. The next set of characters on the evil side is the magicians of Pharaoh. They're mentioned throughout this text. Let me just show you a few times. Chapter 7, verse 22. The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Chapter 8, verse 7. The magicians did the same by their secret arts. And then skipping down to chapter 8. Verse 19, the first half of the verse says, The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is the moment where they figure out that they are outgunned in this battle. Who are these magicians? Who are these folks? Well, they are priest, sage figures in the religious system of Egypt. To understand this, we need to understand that in ancient Egypt... As in most human civilizations throughout history, the corrupt religious system was embedded in the corrupt political system. They were not separate. And that usually is how it goes. The religious life of humanity is just as prone to corruption and evil as every other part of human experience. Amen? Even in the church, we're not immune to satanic influence beginning to get us focused on things other than Jesus. And these are false religious leaders whose function really is to shore up the power of Pharaoh and of his dynasty. But they're experts in the occult. Let me read to you what one historian wrote. I'm just going to read you, read you a few sentences here describing who these magicians were historically. You ready? Here we go. Pharaoh's magicians would have been specialists in spells and incantations as well as being familiar with the literature for omens and dreams. So we think about if they're around today, they'd be into Ouija boards and tarot cards and horoscopes and all that kind of stuff. 
They would have practiced what's called sympathetic magic, based on the idea that there is an association between an object and that which it symbolizes. For example, that what is done to a person's picture will happen to that person. So think of voodoo dolls, right? That's sympathetic magic. They would have used their arts to command the gods and spirits. If When people get into the occult, they always think they're commanding powers when they're always really being manipulated by those powers. That's how it works. I could tell you stories from pastoral experience of God's redemption, people who are in the occult or people who rejected the grace of God. The stories might make your spine tingle a little bit, but what the stories all end up being about is the victory of Jesus. He's stronger than every evil power. I'm not going to tell you those stories right now for the sake of time. But that's what they were into. The the quote continues. Magic, according to this Egyptian worldview, was the thread that held creation together. And it was used both defensively and offensively by its practitioners, human or divine. So what we're seeing here is these people, they're like witch doctors, but they're court advisors. And their function is to use their power to keep people deceived, to keep people subjected in fear to false rebellious, evil spiritual powers so that Pharaoh and his court can maintain political control. We've got corrupt religious powers that are in cahoots with corrupt political powers. And behind the scenes then, if we have a biblical worldview, we recognize that behind these corrupt political and religious powers are demonic powers. Remember Ephesians 6.12, it was one of our memory verses a while back. We do not wrestle against what? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Demonic powers determined to keep oppressing the people of God and keep suppressing the truth of God. These demonic powers can imitate the works of God, according to this story, to a certain limited degree. But their aim is to deceive and manipulate and control. So that's the two forces, the two powers that are clashing in this story. Now let's talk about the purpose of the powers. In this clash of powers, the purpose of God's kingdom is clear and it's twofold. Let me tell you the two things that according to this text of scripture... And the rest of the book of Exodus that God is up to. First of all, God's kingdom is here to liberate and sanctify God's people. God's kingdom is here to liberate and sanctify God's people. Point one. Point two, God's kingdom is at work to make the glory of God known among all nations. God aims to make the glory of God known among all nations. Let's take... Take a moment to reflect on both of those goals in in kind because this will help us, I think, understand the spiritual battle that we are a part of. First, let's notice that in this text, God, the warrior king, is aimed upon liberating and sanctifying his people. To liberate just means to set free. To sanctify means to set us apart for God, to worship God, to know God, to serve God. Let me show it to you in the text. Look at chapter 7, verse 16, what does God commission Moses to say to Pharaoh? Well, here it is. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go. Everybody say liberation. 
Let my people go. They're captives. They're slaves. In this case, they are literally economically enslaved. And God says, set them free. Let them go. And then there's a purpose. At this point, notice, by the way, that God is not yet demanding Pharaoh to let the people go once and for all. He's actually just demanding let them go out for a period of time to worship me in the wilderness. Ultimately, he's going to set them free once and for all. But the second part of the quote says, let my people go. Let's not miss this. That they may serve me in the wilderness. That's what I've been talking about when I talk about. He doesn't just want to liberate them. He wants to sanctify them. So everybody say sanctification. That's a good churchy word. Um, Sanctification. What does that mean? It means that God is trying to take his people and bring them out of their slavery into freedom. But he doesn't want to just leave them as free fools. Okay. Anybody ever feel like you're free but you're kind of a fool? Well, that's not what God wants for us. That's not what God wants for his people. He wants to make them free, but then he wants to make them his servants. People who have a relationship with the living God who worship him and obey him and trust him and know him. He wants to set them apart. He wants to sanctify them. We see the same thing in chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, look, it's the same thing, two things. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Everybody say liberation. That they may serve me. Everybody say sanctification. He wants his people to be free and he wants his people to be holy. God wants you. The the purpose hasn't changed is what I'm trying to communicate to you. God wants you to be free in Christ. And God wants you to be holy. He wants you to know the living God. He wants you to have a relationship with himself. To trust him. To obey him. To serve him. To worship him. Our warrior God is still fighting for his people in this way today. Jesus Christ came precisely to free us from sin, Satan, and death. Through his death on the cross, Jesus defeated sin, Satan, and death. Then he rose from the grave so that all of us who trust in Christ are free in Christ from sin, Satan, and death. Think of all those New Testament passages. If the Son has set you free, you are free. What? You are free indeed. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. says Galatians 5. God wants us to be free and God wants us to be holy. Jesus died and rose again, not just so that we could be forgiven of our sins and have the hope of eternal life, but so that we can live day to day enjoying intimacy with Jesus and embodying in our lives the righteousness and justice and peace that reflect the glory of God. He came to liberate us, to set us free. He came to sanctify us. To make us holy. And Jesus is fighting for that right now. For you. I want you to get this. God our warrior king is fighting for you to be free and to be holy. God our warrior king is fighting for the people of South Oklahoma City. To be free and holy. And God is fighting for people among all nations to be free and holy. That's why it's a good, a good thing that Jesus is a great warrior king. He's fighting for us. The second thing that God is fighting for here is his aim to glorify his name among all nations. Now that's hinted at in this text and it becomes very repetitively explicit in the rest of the book of Exodus. But let me show you where it's talked about here. Go back to chapter 7 verse 17. God is explaining to Pharaoh why Pharaoh has not obeyed. Isn't that interesting? Verse 16, second half of the verse says, so far you have not obeyed. Pharaoh thinks he's in control, but God's saying, you know what? Even your rebellion just fits into my plan. God's sovereignty is amazing. He says, 
then we find out verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. And then it goes on and talks about the first plagues. We're going to talk about those plagues more in a minute. But here's what I want you to notice. God is not just trying to sanctify his people. He's trying to help even the pagan nations, even Egypt, even Pharaoh to know who he is. He says, you're going to know too. My name is Yahweh. I am who I am. I am the fountain of being of life. I am the all powerful creator of all things. I am the king over all kings. We see it come up again in verse 10. Why does God answer Pharaoh's request to end the plague? Well, Moses says in Chapter 8, verse 10, God's doing this so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. There is no God like God. And as the story of Exodus unfolds, we see it's not just Pharaoh. God wants all the people of Egypt to know that there's no one like God. He wants all the surrounding nations to know that there's no one like God. If you keep reading through the biblical story, when you get to books like Joshua... When, when foreign nations hear that Israel is coming to town, the text will say things like they're trembling because they heard what Yahweh, the God of Israel, did to Pharaoh. God wants his name and his power, his authority, his grace, his goodness, his justice to be known all over the world. He wants it in this story and he wants it today, friends. God is still interested in helping all the nations, all the people groups of the world to know who he is. You remember a few months back, Gavin preached a good sermon on Psalm 67. Remember that? Psalm 67 is a song asking for God's blessing, but it's asking for God to bless us so that we can be fruitful witnesses to God and all the nations can know him. It says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be done upon earth, your saving power among all nations. Then it says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity. What did that mean? It meant, God, I want all the world to know who you are. Because when all the world worships you, all the world will be filled with joy and justice. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Everybody say joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Everybody say justice. When God's glory is manifest everywhere in the world, the power of every Pharaoh will be broken. When people worship God all over the world, the power of sin will be broken. Broken families will be healed. People alienated from God by sin will be united to God and will enjoy him forever. This is why Jesus says to his disciples after his resurrection, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is why we send people to Israel and to Dubai and to other countries all around the world to share the gospel. And this is why we're concerned by, to continue crossing every ethnic and cultural boundary in Oklahoma City. Because God wants all peoples, all nations, to know that he is God, to know his character and his nation because, uh, and his name. Because only then will the nations be glad and experience the freedom and joy and justice of God. Now, what are the purposes of the kingdom of darkness in this clash of powers? Well, we can be shorter on this front because evil is never creative. Get that into your mindset if you want to have a biblical worldview. Evil is never creative. 
All that Satan can do is twist what God has made. Evil is parasitic. It lives off of the good. It can just twist. It can just pervert. Can't make anything new. Rather, evil in all of its forms is simply opposing the creator and his life-giving, liberating work of creation. So in this text, whereas God wants to set people free and make them holy, the powers of darkness very simply are interested in keeping people slaves and keeping them in bondage to sin and deception. Listen, friends, the devil, we know his playbook. He still does the same stuff. And it works, unfortunately. Unless we let the truth of God change our minds. The devil tells you sin is fun. It's going to lead to a fun and joy life. Holiness is boring. It is the exact opposite of the truth. Sin makes you a slave. Anybody want to testify to that? Sin never enslaved any of us. Glory to Jesus. He breaks every chain. Sin makes you a slave. You start just thinking a little more money won't hurt. A little bigger car, a little bigger, nicer house. Maybe nicer car, bigger house, however you want to do that. Won't hurt. Before long, you're a slave to the love of money. You start thinking if a few drinks here and there won't hurt. And before long, man, I've seen so many lives come crashing down from the abuse of alcohol. It's really not worth it, guys. Sin, deception, lying. You think, think it's not going to ruin your life. And then it becomes a habit and nobody trusts you. You have no relationships. Sin enslaves The further you go with sin, the more miserable you become. But the reality is the deeper you go with Jesus, the more joy there is. So all that Satan does is deceive. All he does is oppose creation, oppose life. Take something good that God created and then twist it, put it out of place so that we become slaves. It's the same playbook today as it was then. And if we would trust in Jesus, it wouldn't work in our lives. Whereas God wants to set us free and make us holy, the devil wants to make people, keep people enslaved and in bondage and deceived. And whereas God wants to make his truth, the truth of his name, of his character, of his nature, known among all nations, the power of darkness are simply interested in keeping people deceived so that they can be easily controlled. That's what's happening in the text. That's why the magicians are doing what they're doing. Like it's not, I mean, think about this for a second. There's a plague that made a bunch of frogs come up. And the magicians are like, look, we can make some more frogs come up. That doesn't help the situation, does it? That doesn't help the situation. The reason they're doing it is they're trying to say the gods that we control are just as strong as the God of Israel. But they're about to learn that's wrong. When Pharaoh doesn't listen to God, God moves from talk to power. As I meditated on this story this week, up until this point, God has just been saying, Pharaoh, let my people go so they may serve me. Pharaoh, let my people go so they may worship me. But Pharaoh had a hard heart. He didn't want to listen to the word of God. And so then God started doing signs. Aaron threw the staff on the ground and turned into a snake. Aaron picked up the snake and turned into a staff. But now things just escalated, didn't they, in this conflict? And I, as I've been thinking about that, I've been thinking about 1 Corinthians 4.20. Some of us need to memorize this verse. Paul says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Friends, we do a lot of talking at church because we're teaching the Bible. And and the Bible is God's word. The Bible actually does have the power to crucify and resurrect. 
The Bible has the power to make things new. But you just need to not be deceived to think that church is just about talk. Church is about the power, the authority of King Jesus. Which means, on the positive side, if we will trust this word and live according to this word, then omnipotent, liberating, sanctifying power will be unleashed in our lives. To make us new and to make our lives count for eternity. But if we are like Pharaoh, we harden our hearts and resist the word of God, then God will continue escalating the pressure with the goal of our repentance. But if we keep hardening our heart, we will get run over. You can't stop this train. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The plagues, we see the first three plagues in this story. What they are is manifestations of divine power. If Pharaoh refuses to submit to God willingly, then God will break the oppressive power of Pharaoh. Though the exact significance of all these plagues is not 100% clear, let me make some observations. Since we're just starting the section of the plagues in, in Exodus, let me share some thoughts with you. First of all, these plagues are designed by God to... Help everybody be aware of the fact that God is interested in dethroning the false gods of Egypt. Pharaoh was worshipped as a god in Egypt. The Nile has, is a god and has gods in, in the worldview of the Egyptians. There's all sorts of nature gods that control all of the different stuff. Scholars have gone through and said, for the frogs, for the gnats, for all these different plagues, it seems to be that there are particular gods of Israel to whom... Or about whom God is saying to everybody, I'm stronger than that one, I'm stronger than that one, I'm stronger than that one. He's dethroning the gods of Egypt. That seems to be happening. The other thing that seems very clear is that the first and last plague are speaking a word about divine justice. You remember what happened back in Exodus chapter 1? Israel was enslaved. Because another pharaoh feared Israel. He had xenophobia. And that xenophobia led him to oppress people. And after he oppressed them and enslaved them, God kept blessing them and multiplying them. And they grew. And then he thought, "Uh uh-oh, the people I've enslaved might revolt against me. They might join with our enemies. So then he had this wicked idea. And they killed all the male babies that were born to the Hebrews. Remember that wicked story. What did they do? They threw them into the Nile. Sometime in the past, Pharaoh, the wicked king of Egypt, in order to maintain his oppressive power, threw the babies in the Nile. And now, God's bringing a series of plagues. The first one is that the Nile turns into blood, as if it is saying, you may have forgotten, but I didn't forget. And then the last plague is, if you refuse to submit to me, you who killed my, the babies of my people, I'm going to come for the firstborn son. What we're being told here is divine justice is inexorable. You cannot run from the justice of God. You cannot hide from the justice of God. All you can do is repent. All you can do is repent and cry out for God's mercy. And the amazing thing is God is merciful to everybody who repents. But for some fool reason, we keep trying to run and hide instead of repenting. As I thought about the river turning into blood... And as I thought about the firstborn son being killed, and as I thought about the vindication of all those mamas who were crying out 
for God's justice as their babies were ripped away from them. I thought about Proverbs 23, 10 through 11. I actually just read this, this passage in my devotional life this week. Proverbs 23, 10 through 11 says, Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless. In other words, don't steal land from people just because their dad died and they're vulnerable. Don't exploit vulnerable people. And the next verse says, For their Redeemer is strong, and he will plead their cause against you. And in my Bible, the word Redeemer has a capital R because it's talking about God. It's talking about God. Friends, it's just so important. Let's just say this for our own selves. Husbands, if you get tempted to abuse your bigger size and abuse your wife, her Redeemer is strong. Parents, if you get tempted to take out your anger on your kids in a way that exploits them and hurts them because you feel mad at the world, their Redeemer is strong. If any of us treat our workers, our employers, our employees away in a way that fails to honor their dignity, listen, God's justice is for real. Now, I want to say right after that, the grace of God is for real. And if we'll just run to the cross and confess our sin and seek forgiveness and healing, he will do it. But we, we need to run to the cross now. We need to confess to Jesus now and get help now. Because if we continue down that rebellious path, God is going to deal with us. As God escalates this conflict through the plagues, the magicians and their demonic cohorts can counterfeit some of God's mighty works. But the escalating clash of powers in this story makes it quite clear that God's little finger is stronger than all the forces of evil put together. That's really what this story is about. Let me just show it to you. The, perhaps, fools though they are, these magicians have a certain understanding about what it means to deal with real power that Pharaoh doesn't have. Because what we read is first this, in verse 22 of chapter 7, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Moses and Aaron turned water into blood, turned the Nile into blood, so they say, look, we can turn some water into blood. It's possible that this is trickery, but I agree with St. Augustine and many biblical scholars, it seems more likely this is some sort of perverse demonic magic that's happening turning more water into blood does not help the plight of egypt but it's their way of saying look we're just as powerful then as we read on to chapter 8 verse 7 but the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up out of the land of egypt again that's not helpful at all but they say yeah aaron can get frogs to come up but we can get frogs to come up too we're just as powerful as them but then verse 19 well, in verse 18, now we get to the plague of gnats. Chapter 8, verse 18, we read, The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So they were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, here it is, This is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. This is the, what are they saying? They're saying, hey, we're, de- we're used to dealing with little gods. This is God. That's what they're saying. They're saying, I didn't recognize this at first, but we just run into a power that we don't know how to control. We just run into a power that is bigger and stronger than us. Now, I don't want to give the false impression that they are repenting and wising up. They are fools. As a matter of fact, if you got your Bible, flip over to 2 Timothy for a second. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul actually talks about these magicians. In Jewish tradition, they were named Janus and Jambres. 
They can't, these two magicians came to be referred to as Janus and Jambres. And Paul refers to them in 2 Timothy 3. What he's doing, here's the context. Paul is warning us, uh, is warning Timothy about false teachers who come in the name of God. They come in the name of Christ. They may be quoting some Bible verses. But listen, everybody who says Jesus and quotes the Bible isn't really teaching the truth of God. Amen. And there's people that are doing that, but really they're just trying to manipulate so they can exploit. They're taking advantage of people. They're trying to get money. They're trying to get something for themselves. And when Paul is warning against these people in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, that's the magicians. Jewish tradition named those magicians Janus and Jambres. Maybe it's their real name, passed on through oral tradition. So these men also oppose the truth. So these men, false teachers, oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. The faith, But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Talking about Janus and Jambres, the magicians. In other words, these magicians who are trying to get into a showdown with God were fools, and God is about to make it clear to everybody that they are fools. And by the end of the story, they them, I mean, they disappear from the story after this point. But by the end of the story, they themselves recognize the finger of God is stronger than all the power of Egypt. Stronger than all of our political and occult forces. Now, I'm about to wrap up here, but I want to end today by taking a few minutes to reflect. This is an old story. This is an old story. What can this story about... Egypt and about the Hebrews slaves and about frogs and gnats and water turned into blood. What can this story teach us as people living in the 21st century? I mean, our whole culture schools us into thinking that if you can't see it, it's not real. Our whole culture is trying to convince us that we should think that way. So even Christians, even church folk who grew up reading the Bible, we think there's the Bible and that's true. But then in our daily life, something else is going on. We need to connect the dots, friends. It's not just that this is a true story that happens. This is giving us a glimpse into the world we live in right now. The one about which Paul was speaking in Ephesians 6 when he said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against powers and authorities, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places and so on. Let me give you a few reflections. What can we learn about this today? First of all, let me give a sober warning to anybody here who is on the fence spiritually. If you're here because you're seeking Jesus, but you know that you're living in sin, first of all, I'm glad you're here. I love you. Jesus loves you. We're glad you're here. But in a spirit of love, I just need to speak this word of warning. Make sure you get on the side of King Jesus as soon as possible. I'm just going to speak calmly and gently, but I just want to plead with you. If you're on the fence... Get off the fence. Make sure that as soon as possible. You don't, you don't know. If you harden your heart today, you don't know how much more time there is to get things right. Get off the fence. Pray for God to give you a soft heart. Get on the side of King Jesus. He is good. He's true. He's gracious and he's forgiving. And friends, he is the warrior king. And if we repent and trust in Christ, he will forgive our sins and welcome us into his family. But if we persist in choosing sin over Jesus, then sadly we will get what we have earned. Judgment. And as the story of Exodus tells us and as the New Testament makes abundantly clear, it is a horrible thing 
to face the judgment that we deserve for our sins. It's a horrible thing. So I just want to plead with you. Make sure you get on the side of King Jesus. You don't have to do a thousand good things. You don't have to get Christian merit badges. All you have to do is in your heart right now say, Jesus, I've sinned against you. Forgive me. I believe you're the son of God that died on the cross for me and rose again. I trust in you and he will forgive you right now. He'll change your life. And before you go, grab somebody in the church to talk to you about the next steps in your spiritual journey. But now I want to shift gears and talk about Christians, disciples of Jesus in the room. What can we learn from this? And I'm going to try and share with you one negative lesson and two positive lessons as we get ready to leave today. Here's the negative lesson. Friends, we need to be alert because there is a spiritual battle raging around us all day, every day, whether we know it or not. The, the clash of kingdoms we read about in Exodus 7, which continues all the way. It started in Genesis and continues all the way through the book of Revelation. In the Bible, this clash of kingdoms is the reality of our daily experience. So we need to be alert. We need to be aware of that fact. If you struggle with this, you might want to memorize 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. It says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Resist Satan. Be alert, be watchful, and resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There is a spiritual battle raging throughout the world. Satan is trying to destroy lives. Jesus is saving lives. And that is my day-to-day experience. So Peter says, be watchful, be alert, be engaged in the fight. Because the fight is happening whether you know it or not. I just want you to imagine something for a second, friends. Imagine that Oklahoma City is in the middle of a war zone, like, a, like you see on TV, in war-torn parts of the world right now, where there's people running around, blow, buildings are all blown up, there's machine guns, people getting shot in the street. Imagine that that was happening, and imagine that you and I walked around like some fools as if there was no war zone. Would our naivete make the battle go away? But what it would do is make us get killed quick, right? Spiritually, a lot of us do that a lot of the time. There is a battle raging, whether we are alert or not. So the Bible says, get alert, be watchful. Married folks, when there's a conflict going on and it's escalating and there's a choice in front of you to choose humility and love and faithfulness or to choose to throw in the towel or to get mad or to be proud or to demand your side be heard before you're going to yield an inch this is not just a sociological issue it's a spiritual battle single folks when there's a choice to receive this singleness as a gift and with joy and contentment and love and integrity and self-control keep pursuing Jesus like he's enough Or to give in to whatever, self-pity, self-indulgence, bitterness. This is not just an emotional, psychological thing. This is a spiritual battle. When that old besetting temptation comes up, a money thing, a sexual thing, a whatever thing, a substance abuse thing, just be aware, friends. It's a spiritual battle. Satan wants to destroy. God's grace is big enough to help us pick up the pieces of our shattered lives. And as a pastor, I've had the experience many times 
over the last decade of being there with people to put my arm around them when their lives have been shattered by their own sin or by the sin of someone else. And I've watched God's grace put together the shattered pieces of a life. Amen. But what I'm trying to say is it's a lot better if you put yourself in the grace of God before the life gets shattered. Do you hear me? So number one, be alert. Now here's the two positive points. We're going to end up. Y'all ready to get encouraged now? Here's Christian positive point one. My second piece of advice, second lesson for you to learn from this. Friends, we need to be more bold and courageous. We have nothing to fear because God's little finger is stronger than all the forces of evil combined. That's not just true in this story. That's true today. That's true out at the apartment complex or the school or the workplace or the family or the neighborhood that you're trying to serve Jesus in. Listen, I love 1 Corinthians 15:25. What a great verse. For Jesus, it's talking about the Jesus who died and rose again and sat on a throne. And it says this, Jesus must reign. He's going to keep sitting on that throne as king until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Death, Satan, sin. Jesus is going to prevail over all of them. Christian, we need to know the victory that is already ours and the victory that will surely be ours. We need to know. Then we'll be bold and courageous and we'll have no fear. What's the victory that's already yours? Let me give you a couple texts. If you want to know the victory that's already yours, just jot down Colossians 2, 13 through 15. If you're super fast, you can flip to it. If not, you can just listen. I'm going to read it to you. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Here's the victory that is already yours. Everybody say, we are victorious. In Christ, here's what your victory is. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is with Jesus Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I'm going to pause right there before I read the last verse. Here's what it's saying. You have a long list of unpaid receipts, which is your sin. And you know it. We like to convince each other that we're good people. But when we lay on bed at night, we remember our receipts, don't we? And what the text said is God took those receipts and nailed them to the cross of Jesus and said, paid in full. It's done. It's done. You don't have to lose any more sleep about it. If you wake up thinking about it, just praise Jesus. That's what's being said right here. It's your sins. have The record of your sins is already canceled. Jesus paid it in full, and therefore you are alive, you're forgiven, you're cleansed right now. We are victorious. And then listen to what the next verse says about the consequence of that forgiveness and that freedom. Verse 15 says this. He, that is Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Sorry, he, that is God, triumphed over them in Christ. What Paul is doing in that verse is... Drawing on something graphic that happened in Roman life to talk about the victory that ours. When a Roman general conquered his enemies, he would come back for a victory march. Like what Damien Lillard was doing to the thunder last week. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us, right? That's what was happening. And uh, the, the returning general would march, but this was even more dramatic because what he's got is the commanding officers of the army that was just defeated, walking in front, often naked, often bound, and they are his trophies. And he is publicly shaming them as a testimony to his victory. And what Paul is doing is referring to that experience, and he says, already 
by canceling the record of your sins, Jesus did that to every demon that would come against you. They are already being shamed and led in triumphal procession. They can still come at you, but you, they, they can only convince you that they have power in your life if you don't know the word of God. Because what Paul is saying is when Jesus canceled the record of your sin, the power of Satan in your life was broken. Everybody say, we are victorious. But we all know there's still a bunch of sin and evil and pain in the world. So when is that going to get sorted out? Let me just read to you a few verses from Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I'm almost done here. But we, we got to read this before we go because we're talking about the cosmic victory of Jesus Christ. And here's what's going to happen. I don't know if y'all paid attention to what you were seeing a little while ago. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation. When you sung that, did you think about it? When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation, Jesus is going to return in glory. Every knee is going to bow. Listen to how Revelation 9, 11 through 16, describes the second coming of Christ Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. That's talking about Jesus. Everybody say, that's Jesus. The one sitting on the white horse, Jesus, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Jesus is the warrior king. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. That's you, folks. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, coming after our commander, King Jesus. White and fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's Jesus. And when he comes on the white horse, friends, that's the day in which all, every pharaoh, every force of evil, every religious lie, every form of idolatry is over. All the pain. And after he conquers, he comes in gentleness to wipe every tear from each of our eyes. As we leave, here's my final hopeful point. This one will be quick. I just want you to leave here today remembering the sacred significance of your everyday acts of faith and faithfulness. I want you to leave here remembering that your everyday acts of faith and faithfulness are a participation in a cosmic battle with eternal significance. And I wish I had time to list a hundred scenarios that I know you're engaging in day to day. But friends, when you're tired and you're busy but you choose to take a few minutes and read your Bible and pray before just plunging into the day. What you just did is unleash the power of God to sanctify you, to make you free, and to propel you out into the world as his warrior. Mamas, I know, I know that it is a struggle sometimes to take care of those little blessings, isn't it? And you're doing a lot of teaching, and you're patiently praying, and you're patiently serving, and you're patiently correcting and sometimes you're impatiently hiding in your room crying out to Jesus whatever you need to do but what I'm trying to say to those day-to-day acts of faith and faithfulness are molding the souls of human beings that first of all is going to have an eternal impact on this precious child's destiny 
And second of all, can have generations of ripple effects so that thousands of lives are touched through the life of this person. Sacred significance. When you sit down for a discipleship meeting one-on-one with somebody to read the Bible and pray and talk about how life is going and how we're going to follow Jesus. Friends, I, I can tell you over the last 20 years, I've consistently underestimated the fact that how much God is using those moments. And then somebody's telling me about a conversation that I forgot about five minutes after it was over. But they say 12 years ago in this discipleship meeting, when we looked at this scripture and you said this, I made a decision and it affected the trajectory of my life. And now hundreds of people have been impacted by it. You just never know. You never know. When you're at work sharing the gospel with your coworkers, whatever it is that you're doing day to day, just the simple acts of faith and faithfulness. This is a participation in a cosmic struggle. We already have the victory in Christ. He's already won the decisive battle. We know he's coming to glory to make all things new. Now it's our joy and our privilege to keep pursuing righteousness. Because in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. Let's pray as we get ready to go to the Lord's table. Oh Lord, I just ask now as I asked at the beginning that you would open the eyes of our heart. To know and to believe and to remember and to keep at the forefront of our minds the truth of this cosmic conflict that the Bible tells us about. That we would not fear our enemy, but that with joy and confidence and faith, we would be alert. We would pray. And we pursue Jesus. And as we go to the Lord's table now, would you remind us again... That our victory is not because of how good and impressive we are. Give us grace to see and to confess the ugliness of our sins. And remind us that though we have broken and we have been broken and we've deserved judgment. That you love us more than we could possibly imagine. And that the body and blood of Jesus are our victory. Refresh and renew us with that knowledge. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.